compelling insights, unpredictable conversations, encouragement for your day. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Okay, let's get this road show back on the road, and you can be part of it when you call 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. Email, send them to me at patrick at relevantradio.com. Let's get over to Todd now in Phoenix. Good morning, Todd. Hey, Patrick, good morning. As we're moving and grooving and we're doing yeah. worldly athletic endeavors and we're working hard, um... I'm a big fan of fasting. I don't think I do it well, but I'm calling you for some coaching today. As uh, <laughs> I have to laugh. Iron- Forgive me. I have to laugh that you're asking me to coach you about fasting. I am not known for being uh, particularly skilled at that, but I will do my best, Todd. You know, I'm just, I, I understand the soulfulness of it, the grace of it, but then I also go back to my worldly ideas about you know, right now I'm doing about a hundred pounds of linen for our wellness center, which I normally don't do. Um, I just got out of the pool. So I'm expending physical bodily energy. Um, and I'm just thinking to myself, well, how do I manage that? And I, I think really what it's all about is just to minimize the overall intake of food. Is, is that what we're doing? I mean, the, the church puts out general protocols like, Hey, you know, have a small meal and then one bigger one or what give me some input patrick sure i'll I'll do my best so if if you're wondering about what does the church prescribe for the law of fasting during the time of lent so particularly on ash wednesday and good friday the church says and this goes back to a document from pope paul vi called penitemini back in the 19 the late 1960s as i recall in which he spells out that on a day of fast, you can have one full meal. And he says you can have other food, you know, throughout the day as necessary, if you need it, but you you can't have more than one full meal. So that's an open-ended question. Now, the Bishops' Conference of the United States is a bit more specific about that, and they reference penitemony. So in their way of explaining this for Catholics in the United States— they go a step further and say that the law of fasting means that you can have one full meal a day. It has nothing, they don't talk about calories or kilograms or weight or, you know, volume of food or anything like that. It's just one full meal, however you, you know, define that. And you can have food, snacks, for example, or two smaller amounts of food that don't in themselves add up to another full meal. So it's a little more descriptive in the the statement from the U.S. Bishops' Conference, but it's, it quotes and is drawing from what Pope Paul VI said in his statement. Now this, by the way, if you're wondering, Todd, this is so minimal compared to what, let's say, the Eastern Catholic churches do, many of them anyway, and what the Eastern Orthodox do. They have a much more rigorous Great Lent. They call it Great Lent. And so... The abstaining from not just meat, but from dairy and eggs and anything that would be related to animals, they fast from all of that too. So it's a very rigorous fast, and it used to be more rigorous in the Latin Rite Church, but it has become very minimal. So the Church asks very little of us when it comes to fasting. It's, you might say, the bare minimum. 
So that is what I would tell you in terms of what the bishops say that we must do if you're looking for, like, what's the bare minimum? And it doesn't sound like you are, but the spirit of fasting is yours to determine how you want to do it. You could say no food at all. You could say only a little bit of food just to be able to get through the day. You could say bread and water. You could say, I mean, you can you can make it however you wish, but at the bare minimum, it's one full meal a day, and if necessary, some extra food that doesn't add up to another meal. Is that what you were looking for, Todd? Because I want to make sure I'm answering the question you're thinking about. Yes, absolutely. Um, But really, the prize of the process of fasting, as as I was listening to you, is the prize. It goes back to what you're talking about with the Eucharist on, on, on that it actually is the body and blood of Christ, Mm-hmm. which completely nourishes our body, mind, and spirit. So if we can keep our eye on that and the fasting today, if, if you have 30 more seconds, please yeah, sure. tell, me, tell, me, tell me the gratification, because it is a process, as everything else is. Um, as you're talking about that, I'm just feeling it right now on how it does feel good to fast. I mean, it physically, of course, gives our digestive system a break, but spiritually, that's the prize. If you could just uh, alliterate a little bit on the actual prize on on what we're going for here on the why, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll try. So yes, there are certainly health benefits that come from fasting. People do intermittent fasting to lose weight. It's not because they're spiritual. Um, they have another reason for doing it. But yes, there are bodily benefits, no doubt about that. Spiritually, there are also great benefits in terms of mastering our unruly appetites. So we have plenty of unruly appetites, and they will master us if we don't master them. So fasting is a way to exert control over the body and to subdue or hold in check the unruly appetite for food. So even just at that level, it's a way of intensifying your will and mastery over your, over your body. Then there there are higher things. So fasting is a way of entering more deeply into the spirit of Christ's own sacrifices for us. He fasted in the desert for 40 days. I can't imagine what that would be like, but he did it. So there's a, a Christ dimension to this as well, in which we are drawing nearer to and trying to emulate Jesus. But there's an interesting side note here that is worth thinking about too. It can also be a negative for some people, if they take pride in it, if they become vain, oh, look at me, look at how well I can fast. I'm not saying this describes you, Todd, but it does describe some people for whom fasting is sort of something that they, even if they're not showing off to other people, they have a vanity about them with regard to their ability to fast. So my thought on this issue would be as a way to curb that prideful approach to this where, you know, look how holy I am, look how much I fast, and boy, God must be really proud of me. Um, The life of St. Anthony of the Desert, which was written by St. Athanasius, he wrote this in the third century, St. Anthony of the Desert was renowned for his fasting and his long vigils. He went out and he lived in the wilderness with the snakes and the scorpions and the wild animals, and he lived to be a very old man, and he was a master at fasting. So St. Athanasius gives us, in this biography of St. Anthony, he gives us not only the, the exploits and tells us all the amazing things that he did, 
but he also provides a way for us if we're if we want to go in that direction however far a way to maintain humility and this is one of the hallmarks of saint anthony of the desert he was not proud he didn't seek spiritual consolation i mean it's nice when it comes and if you feel you know that sort of high when you've been fasting and you feel spiritually united to the lord that's great that's really good and if the lord gives us those consolations, so be it. But it's not for the sake of the consolation that we are to do it. And so this is where that pride factor can come in. So I would say if you're at all interested in one of the the recognized masters of the ascetical life, read that biography of St. Anthony written by St. Athanasius. I'll leave it at that because maybe you have a follow-up, Todd. St. Anthony, you're just, you're putting out a lot of good book reading today, Patrick. <laughs> Um, and, and that's really cool because, because that's what I was thinking is that consolation and, uh, you helped me to turn it on, on its head because I am filled with unruly appetites. Mm-hmm. Um, as you and me both are, brother, but, <laughs> I think everybody listening but, can say the same thing, but that's what I want. That's what I want, Patrick. I want to, uh, you know, I just want to have a good day and, and be at peace with our Lord. Um, yeah. Please pray for uh, St. James, the Greater Fellowship. We're on a uh, on a mission up to good old Gallup, Mexico, to see your good friend. So we'd appreciate the mm-hmm. uh, relevant radio prayers for these men. and uh, The great Bishop James Wall, oh, Gallup of New Mexico. Yeah, great friend, good man. Appreciate the uh, input and the coaching today, Patrick. Have a good day, sir. You got it, Tom. Thank you. And uh, please do convey my my warmest regards to Bishop Wall. He's a great bishop, no doubt about that. Let's see, 888-914-9149. Just as a quick timeout, or quick uh, tidbit, rather, the edition that I have of The Life of St. Anthony by St. Athanasius is published by St. Vladimir Press, which is a St. Vladimir Seminary Press. It's an Orthodox, I think it's a Russian Orthodox seminary, and they produce wonderful patristic works with good translations into English. And I don't know whether or not The Life of St. Anthony has been published by, say, Ignatius Press or not. Maybe it has been. But um, if you run across one of those that is published by uh, St. Vladimir Seminary Press, it's a good, sound, worthy version. So I would encourage anybody, you know, feel free to pick that up and maybe that could be a good Lenten companion. Okay, let's go to Gideon now in Lexington, Kentucky. Good morning, Gideon. Hello, Patrick. So I'm taking a public speaking class at my Christian homeschool co-op and I'm doing an in-class debate soon. And the question for it is whether the Bible can be trusted or not. And so I'd like to hear Mm -hmm. your thoughts and get some information from you. Sure. Now, are you being assigned a, a, a topic or a position on this question, or is it you're yeah, choosing to... Be, pardon? Can the Bible be trusted? As well? Right. What I'm saying, though, is that are you being assigned to to say, to give the reasons why, not that they're good reasons, but to take the side of the Bible can't be trusted, or are you going to give a presentation on why the Bible can be trusted? Because sometimes they give you an assignment to show the other side of the argument. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing why the Bible can be trusted. Can be trusted. Got can. it. Yeah. Will you be debating this, or will it just be a freestanding presentation on why the Bible can be trusted? Debating. We'll be going back and forth from one side to the other. 
Okay. So I would suggest, uh, first of all, I'll give you a few principles that you can think about. But um, a lot of work has been done on this by, I mentioned Scott Hahn earlier, H-A-H-N is his last name. And he has a, I think it's a one-hour talk on Can You Trust the Bible? And it's available as a digital download. I believe at one time it was available from Lighthouse Catholic Media. And you might want to check on that, Lighthouse Catholic Media, and then go in the section on Talks on the Bible and I would say download that one. That'll be a good template for you. And he has lots of good information on that. And he used to be a Bible-only Protestant. So now as a Catholic, he has a, you know, he's been Catholic for many decades. But the point is, he will give you a good template for how you can arrange your presentation. Um, also, Catholic Answers has quite a bit in this area in terms of articles and tracts and things like that that are available. So if you were to go to their website, catholic.com, and just type in, can you trust the Bible? You will pull up all sorts of things that are free, like articles and such. So that will also give you some guidance on how to do it. Now, here are a few general principles. Um, yes, you can trust the Bible, and the reason you can trust it is because God is the primary author. The human authors were secondary authors, but they were really authors. So the personalities and the the quirks and the ways of speaking and the various ways of writing. Um, some of the prose is very refined and, and elegant. Some of it is not so refined and not so elegant. So that's where you see the reader, I'm sorry, the writer's personality present. But yet God is the primary author of Scripture. And so he is the one who is moving or inspiring, as it says in 2 Timothy 3.16. He's breathing into the minds of these authors the words that he wants them to say, or at least the concepts that he wants them to say. Now, this is covered in great length in a, in a couple of uh, papal encyclicals, which I would also recommend that you read. One is Divino Aflante Spiritu, and that is uh, the, it takes into account the role of the Holy Spirit in inspiring sacred scripture. This was an encyclical written by Pope Pius Twelfth, and it came out in 1943. So it would be very helpful for you as you're looking at it, because it's talking about how do we promote study of the Bible, how do we understand the Bible? And this is part of it. The, the Bible can be trusted, but we have to understand it properly. And there are many who do not understand it properly. The Bible itself warns about this. St. Peter says that there are many things in the writings of St. Paul that the ignorant and unstable distort to their own destruction, just as they do the other scriptures. So there you see the Bible warning about misinterpreting the Bible. Because just because there's a written word or a sentence on the page doesn't mean that the person reading it will necessarily know the authentic meaning. So Divino Aflante Spiritu by Pope Pius Twelfth is an excellent guide that will show you how the Church says this is the way in which we look at Scripture, how do we interpret Scripture, what are the guidelines, etc. So that would be one papal encyclical that I would recommend. Another one that I would recommend is... Uh, providentissimus Deus, Providentissimus Deus, so P-R-O-V-I-D-E-N-T-I-S-S-I-M-U-S, this is a long word, Providentissimus Deus, D-E-U-S, this is by Pope Leo Thirteenth, and this, this uh, encyclical came out in, when was it, 1890 or 18, 1893 is when it came out. 
And this too is an encyclical on the study of Scripture. So these two encyclicals will be excellent guides for you to get a thoroughly Catholic, biblical, traditional way of explaining this to your class. Now, I don't want to burden you with other things, but those resources right there, any one of which I think will help you quite a bit. Does that help? Very helpful. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. And I realize some of these words are long, so if you need to go back and replay it and write them down, the the show will be archived about an hour after the show's over today. All right. Thank you, Patrick. You're welcome. And I hope you get an A. Let's go to Pat now in Mobile, Alabama. Good morning, Pat. Good morning. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I certainly can. You're on the air. Okay, Chris. I have a friend who is a not, she's not Catholic. She is ill, and I got a text message from her this morning asking for prayers because Mm -hmm. she's very ill. I wanted to tell her something about offering this illness up to Jesus for her family or for whatever intention, Mm -hmm. but she is not Catholic, and I don't have a good way of explaining sacrificial suffering that she would, that someone who isn't Catholic would understand. I -hmm. would very much appreciate any of your thoughts on this. Sure, sure. I'd be happy to. So why don't we begin with one of the classic passages on this issue, and this is from St. Paul. It's in Colossians chapter 1. So we'll begin reading in verse 24. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the divine office which was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now made manifest to his saints. So this passage, as brief as it is, it seems to me it contains the skeleton key that unlocks this question about why is suffering valuable? What makes it valuable? Isn't it terrible? I mean, shouldn't we flee from suffering? Shouldn't we do everything possible to avoid suffering? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Uh, in, In a strict sense, yes, that we... We seek to avoid suffering as a natural thing. If you have a headache, you take an aspirin. If you have a pain in your abdomen, you go to the doctor to find out what it is. Maybe you need medicine, maybe you need an operation, but we do what's necessary to avoid that kind of suffering. That's why we have such great advances in medicine as we we recognize the importance of alleviating suffering, saving lives. So I don't mean to say that suffering is something that we just want, but when suffering is present, it has great value. And in, let's look at verse 24 here. He says, I rejoice, number one, he's happy, he's rejoicing, in that he's suffering for the church. My suffering's for your sake. So we can see here that he's offering his sufferings to the Lord on behalf of or for the sake of his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. He says, in my flesh, and this refers to a couple different things. Number one is, almost certainly St. Paul was in chains in a prison when he wrote this. He spent a lot of time in prison. He got beaten down repeatedly, stoned repeatedly, whipped 40 times minus one repeatedly, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, cold nights, adrift at sea. I mean, he gives us in his epistles examples of the many sufferings he experienced 
And here he's saying, I'm, I'm doing it for your sake. In my flesh, he says, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Well, what does that mean? I can tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he's saying that Jesus didn't suffer enough. That would be ludicrous to say that Jesus is suffering, you know, in his passion, the the scourging at the pillar, the crowning with thorns, the Via Dolorosa, the crucifixion itself, hanging on the cross for hours on end, dying on the cross. He's not saying that that was not sufficient in terms of suffering. He's saying, I'm completing what is lacking, referring to the body of Christ. In other words, we, members of the body of Christ, in our own sufferings, we participate with Jesus in the suffering that extends beyond the suffering that Jesus had on the cross. We now, as members of the body of Christ, we participate in that in in our own sufferings, as St. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Read that whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 12. He says, no member of the body can say to any other member, I do not need you. He says, when one member of the body suffers, all the members suffer with it. So the analogy there in 1 Corinthians 12 ties in perfectly here with Colossians 1.24, in that he is a member of the body, and his suffering, he's, he's using it for the upbuilding of the body that his good example, his perseverance, his bodily tortures and other things that he went through, he's offering that up, and it is now a participation. So when he says what is lacking in Christ's affliction, he means referring to all those sufferings yet to come in the body of Christ. That's you and me, united with Jesus. So I would start there, and I would just ponder that and see how in this passage, St. Paul is identifying the value of suffering. Now, we can see this even just at a natural level. I mean, you're a woman, and I don't know if you're married, but if you're married, you probably have had children. And if you've had children, you don't need me to tell you that it involves suffering. Childbirth, not to mention the nine months leading up to childbirth, especially the last few, um, they're painful, they're difficult. And then there's great pain involved in delivery. Every woman who's had children knows that. So there's, from an earthly standpoint, we can see there's value in suffering. It's worth it, in other words. When that little baby pops out and you have a new son or daughter to love for the rest of your life, all that suffering is worth it. So even just from a mundane example like childbearing all the way up to this august mystery that St. Paul is talking about in Colossians chapter 1, we can see that suffering can be wasted or it can be put to meritorious good use. And that's the meaning of suffering in the Catholic sense, in the biblical sense, is that we're offering it to the Lord. I'll pause. Does that help? That helps a great deal. What was that first, Colossians? What was that citation? Yeah, that was in Colossians chapter 1, and the particular Uh verse is verse 24, also verse 25. Wonderful. Thank you. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to pull up the archive of this show and I'm going to play her your answer because okay. it's fantastic. Sounds Thank good. Shout out to much. your friend. Thank you. Maybe we'll get her to listen to the show too. Help her get the relevant radio app downloaded on her phone and we'll be off and running. I'll be right back. Join Father Rocky this September for a pilgrimage to Poland and Prague. 
You'll visit the lands of St. John Paul the Great, St. Faustina, Our Lady of Chestahova, and the Infant Child of Prague. Seats are limited. Information at RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. That's RelevantRadio.com slash Poland. It's the Patrick Madrid Show on Relevant Radio. Join the conversation at 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. All right. Uh, Welcome back. The number 888-914-9149. That number is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. We'll go to Mark now in Scottsdale. Good morning, Mark. Yeah, hi, Patrick. Quick question for you. Every Mm -hmm. once in a while, I'll read about a topic called generational sin, and I don't quite fully understand it. Just wondering if you've ever come across that and could kind of explain what that mm-hmm. might be. Well, I've heard that too many times, and I understand it in a couple of different ways, so I'll give you some of the different ways that I understand it. So the first one would be, of course, Adam and Eve's fall in the garden, that if ever there were a generational sin, that's it. Now, doesn't mean that the subsequent generations after Adam and Eve committed that sin, but in this sense of understanding the phrase, their sin is perpetuated down through their progeny, down through their descendants, as a condition of sin that we inherit. So the ultimate ultimate generational sin is the sin of Adam and Eve, because it it reverberates down through all generations of human beings. We're all conceived, uh, with the exception, of course, of our Lord and Our Lady, we're all conceived in the state of original sin. So we're missing something that we should have rightfully inherited, those supernatural and preternatural gifts that Adam and Eve lost because of their sin. So that's one way of understanding it. Another way of understanding it, it seems to me, is that the sins of the fathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, can be perpetuated in the children and, and subsequent generations by the, this familial tendency to commit certain sins. So think about mafia families. So the mafia families, whether here in the United States or in Italy or wherever they may be, it tends to be a generational father handing it on to son, son handing it on to the grandson, and so on, where you can see these these family members, these descendants, apprenticed into the sin of the father and then perpetuated down. And in this case, they're actually participating in whatever the sin may be. So prostitution, murder, racketeering, whatever it is that the the mafia people are doing, it can be generational in that sense. And then the last thing would be, not that this exhausts all the possibilities, but the other major one that comes to my mind is that the effects of the sin of the father, or even more than just the father, can be passed down in a deleterious way. This is analogous to the sin of Adam and Eve, but in a um, in a more flesh and blood sense. So Exodus chapter 20 talks about this, where God says the iniquity of the fathers passes down to the children, to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So in this sense, what I would propose is we can understand generational sin as the, the deleterious effects. It could be in terms of um, physical problems. So let's say that the mother is a prostitute. And the child is born with um, an STD, maybe dies from it. 
Uh, it could be a drug addiction that causes the generational side effects in children who are born from a drug-addicted father or mother, passes down to them, and so on. So it can take a variety of forms, but those are the three that when I hear the phrase, um, that's what I think of when I hear that. What do you think, Mark? Uh, well, that's the best explanation I have he heard or read. So, <laughs> oh, I, I, I thank you for that. I mean, I just, I mean, I kind of get the impression that it's something that, I know you pray for breaking of this generational bond or sin, mm -hmm. but I mean, you kind of put it in uh, in terms that I think are real understandable. Well, thank you. I mean, that's my goal is to try to do that. I've I've read a few things by. Um, exorcists, for example, and they, from time to time, will mention this and the breaking of uh, bondage in families that goes on for generations. So um, I'm aware that from a spiritual warfare standpoint, there are some aspects of this. I don't claim to have deep knowledge on those matters. But uh, for what it's worth, those are the three ways of looking at it that I bring to the question. Great. That's outstanding. Thank you, Patrick. Have a good Thank weekend. Thank you, Mark. Good chatting. Let's go to Mike now in Sykesville, Maryland. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. And before I start, I want to thank you for all that you're doing, and God bless you. Thank you. Appreciate that. What I was looking for is a composite of Jesus's words that, you know, that basically form the basis or the words that lead to the dogma of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. The reason I would like to have that is to be periodically to, to run through them to keep reminding me of all that, that he spoke of. Yeah, that's a noble endeavor, no doubt about that. So the first and foremost, of course, is going to be the New Testament, the revealed Word of God in Scripture. So starting with the four Gospels, that's where you will get every single last word that was recorded that Jesus said, you'll find it there. So that's your source book right there. Obviously, more than one individual book. Everything that the apostles say in the subsequent epistles in the New Testament are variations on a theme, but they're also the teachings of the Holy Spirit that go beyond what Jesus directly revealed. Jesus said, I will send the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all truth. So there's much more that we learn from the apostles, some of which they refer to Jesus, some of which is under direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's got to be part of it as well, because we wouldn't want to restrict our understanding of divine revelation solely to those statements that Jesus made in, that are contained in the, in the Gospels. I'm sure you see what I mean. In other words, that's the focal point, but there's more that the Holy Spirit delivered to the Church after the fact. Now, yeah, but what I was looking for, and it may not exist, is that someone would go, you know, pull out his words from the different uh, Gospels, etc., that are the significant words that he has yeah. uttered. That's where I was headed, Mike. I was headed in that oh. direction. Yeah, I, I was going to give okay. you what you're looking for, but I wanted to set the stage so yeah. that so that it was clear, not so much for you maybe, but for people who think, oh well, why didn't he talk about Jesus? You know, why didn't he, why didn't he talk about the yeah. Bible? So that's yeah. why I why I started with that. So here's where I'm heading with it. The classic is known as Denzinger, and Denzinger is a a tome. It's a it's a probably runs to a thousand page. I have my copy 
at home in my personal library. But I will give you a couple of things that you can get that if you don't want to wrestle with the Greek and the Latin, Denzinger has a lot of that. And what it does is it goes through and it gives you the monuments of the church's dogmatic teachings, whether in a council or a pope or something like that. And it's referenced to the statements of Jesus and the apostolic writings in the New Testament. But for those who maybe don't want to deal with all that, there are two other resources that are readily available in English. There is some Latin involved and some Greek involved, but you can skip over that. The first one is called The Sources of Catholic Dogma, and this is an edition of Denzinger. So it's a, it's a more compact version. I have a copy here in the studio. So what this does, and by the way, this edition... Uh, was translated by Roy J. De Ferrari, kind of like the car. So this is the Denzinger Encuridian Symbolorum. That that phrase, Encuridian Symbolorum, means the treasury of the creed, or the treasury of the statements of faith that the Church proposes. So this is revealed truth, dogmatic teaching, and it's systematized not only chronologically, but also by topic. So you'll be able to see when when the church quoted Jesus on the Eucharist or what have you, you'll be able to see where those places are, what councils, what papal statements. And a, a similar but somewhat different version of this, it's about the same size, this is called Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. And this is, a, this is a written, prepared by Ludwig Ott, O-T-T. And this is... Similar, what it does is it goes through, let's say, let me just give you an example from the table of contents. So it's laid out in a way similar to the way St. Thomas Aquinas laid out the Summa Theologiae. So you've got book one, the unity and trinity of God. And in that section, it deals with the existence of God, the nature of God, the attributes and qualities of God. Part two is the doctrine of the, of the triune God dogmatic formulations about the Trinity, etc. Then it goes into God the Creator, uh, God, the doctrine of God the Redeemer, attributes of Christ, the doctrine of the work after the Redeemer. So all of these things, and it goes on quite a bit beyond that, are laid out so that you see what is the scriptural, Jesus-centered, biblical basis for this teaching. Not all of which, by the way, are Jesus himself speaking, but many of them are. And then where do we see this reflected in a dogmatic statement, in a council, for example? So these three resources are, are any one of which would be probably even more maybe than what you're looking for, but those would be the sources I would turn to. Is that um, my... Very good. That, yeah, I could even use that as a basis of abstracting more, you know, mm -hmm. uh, it direct quotations from Christ when he spoke the words that he did. Right. So this is very helpful, and uh, I'm glad I called you, because I, I didn't know where I could turn. Oh, no problem. Uh, I'm here. Here's something you'll really like, Mike. So I'm, I've got the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma here. It's published by Tan Books, by the way, T-A-N. And Tan is an imprint now of St. Benedict Press. They're headquartered in Charlotte. But if you get this, one nice feature is that in the back of the book, there's a scriptural index. So let's say that you're cross-referencing the New Testament. So you're going through the Gospels, and you're taking note of everything that Jesus said. And there are red-letter Bibles that already do that for you, where everything that Jesus said is in red. 
then you can take those passages. So let's say you're reading, you see something Jesus says. You can then go to Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, and in the index you can look up that verse and then see what did the Church say about what Jesus said in that verse. So it's a really nice way to cross-reference the dogma and the dogmatic statements with the biblical teachings. And that's an ot. Ot, O-T-T. OTT. Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, right? Boy, that sounds that sounds really good. Yes. Yeah, it's really Thank good. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Mike. As you can probably tell, I love talking about this stuff. So, thanks for giving me the opportunity. Well, we'll take a break and we'll come back and we'll go right back to your phone calls. We had a couple lines open in the last few minutes, so you can grab one by calling eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. There's still time. Plus, we have another hour after this one. That'll go by quickly, so don't be shy. 888-914-9149. I'll be right back. This hour is sponsored by Christendom College's Free Principles Classes. Sign up for a free online class on Holy Scripture today at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Learn to read the Bible with the mind of the church at NewTestamentFoundations.com. Get connected to the conversation. Call now. 888-914-9149. That's 888-914-9149. Patrick Madrid is on now. Relevant Radio. Let's go! Looking at the clock here, we have yeah, we've got some time this hour, plus an hour yet to come. So if you've been getting a busy signal when you call, do not despair. Just keep hitting redial. 888-914-9149. Let's go to Mary now. Is it Chaska, Minnesota or Chaska, Minnesota? Chaska, Minnesota. Chaska, got it. Well, welcome, Mary. Thank you. Um, I am calling in with not a question, but a little bit of gratitude for you this morning, Patrick. Um, I just came into the church last Easter, um, so I'm a brand new baby Catholic, but... Mm. Over the holidays, my dad was saying, like, oh, now that my kid's Catholic, I'm an only child. Um, I'm the only non-Catholic in the family. My mom grew up Catholic. His sister's Catholic. So it was just him. He was kind of joking, like, oh, I'd love to convert, but, you know, I don't have the time. I don't know where to start, blah, blah, blah. And I was listening to your program um, shortly after New Year's. I wish I could remember the circumstance, but another convert called in and was just sharing, like, what how glad they were to come to the Catholic faith. And I was like, mm-hmm. I'm just, just going to call my dad's local parish. Like one, he's mentioned that he would be interested in and just call their RCIA director. Um, fast forward to today. And actually tomorrow, my dad is doing his first and second rites, And I'm going to be his sponsor oh. as he comes <laughs> into the church. So <laughs> I just beautiful. wanted to say thank you. Yeah. And Kind of speaking to a prior caller, I think there's been a lot of generational issues like Freemasonry, addiction, suicide, murder, like horrible mm. things in my family. And I finally feel free of that. And I'm just so excited. My my whole family now is going to find some peace in uh, home sweet Rome, if you will. So oh, thank you my, so much that, for your programming. That is glorious, Mary. What a what an elated feeling you must have seeing your dad falling oh. into, the, into the church. It's amazing. <laughs> What is his first name so I can give him a shout out? Yeah, his name is Scott. And I know he, he listens even where you were, uh, were Protestant and now, you know, becoming Catholic. But he's listened to Relevant Radio for years. So kind of a no-brainer that he takes the plunge. 
Oh, that's wonderful. Well, well, Scott, I'm so delighted to hear this great news from your daughter, Mary, and so happy to know that Relevant Radio had a little role to play along the way in your journey. And just know that we're here for you. And by the way, that's true for you too, Mary. We're here for you. Mm -hmm. If we can ever help, uh, prayers, advice, info, whatever it is, we're here for you. And uh, an early welcome home to you, Scott. I'm sure the big day will be just glorious. And although we won't be there in person, we'll certainly be there in spirit rejoicing with you. That's awesome, Mm -hmm. Mary. Yeah, thank you so much, Patrick, for all your programming and everything you all do. Means Thanks, so much. Mary. Yeah, thank you. Call anytime. I love good news. So any any good news you want to bring my way, please feel free anytime. That's great. Uh, shout out to all of you converts. I know many of you listening are cradle Catholic. I'm a cradle Catholic. I was born into a Catholic family. I became a Catholic. I became a born-again Christian when I was two weeks old or thereabouts. I was baptized at St. Mary of the Assumption Parish in Whittier, California, shortly after I was born. So I've only known the Catholic faith growing up with it. And um, so I don't have the convert's perspective. I have a cradle Catholic perspective. But I know that many of you are cradle Catholics like I am, but many more of you are also converts to the Catholic Church. Some of you are former members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormons who have come into the Catholic Church, praise God. Many Protestant folk who have become Catholic who listen to this program, and we praise God for whatever your background is and whatever the journey was that you took to get to the Catholic Church. Welcome home. Let's go to Suha. I hope I'm saying it right. Suha in uh, Bloomfield, Michigan. Good morning, Suha. Hi, Patrick. Good morning. Hi. Good morning. I just want to. Good morning. I just want to say thank you so much for your radio. I think with this Lent. I might be sinning by listening too much. <laughs> <laughs> Is that possible? I don't think I don't, you no, can listen so. too much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, my question to you is, um, I know I'm a born Catholic and mm-hmm. love my faith. Thank you, God. Um, we, I was, I'm talking about our, um, we are made of, as I was told, body, mind, and soul. But a lot of people talk about energy. You know, we have energy all around us. We're made of energy. We mm-hmm. go um, to yoga, and I try to, if I do anything, it's just for exercise reasons, and I just always bring God in everything, everything I do, and I just do mostly exercise with that. But either way, everything's energy, energy rocks, which, of course, I don't go into. You know, people okay. say, well, there's energy around you. I just want to understand how to answer somebody with that. Yeah. Well, I suppose the, this phrase, this term energy, can mean different things to different people. For example, Suha, I have in my lifetime, when I've been speaking at conferences or parishes, it's happened a few times, I don't know, maybe fewer than than half a dozen times, where, and usually it's, in fact, it's always been women, maybe two women would come up to me and say, oh, we can see your aura, we can see your energy. And I try to be polite. I'm, I'm interiorly, I'm sort of rolling my eyes like, no, you don't. You don't see an aura around me. You don't see any energy around me. Um, I appreciate their desire to express confidence or goodwill or something like that. But some people, I think they invest too much meaning in this term of energy or they want so much to be mystical they want so much to have higher knowledge or deeper powers of perception than other people have. 
And my impression is that unless you're a great saint, and there are great saints who you know have seen some things like that, but by and large, most people are not great saints, at least not in my experience. So I don't think it's anything more than their own imagination. So energy from crystals or energy from, I mean, I've been to Stonehenge in England. It's beautiful. It's, it's majestic, but I didn't feel any energy. Um, some people claim they feel cosmic energy when they go to a particular place or something. My impression is that that's more often than not nothing more than just one's own imagination. So what is it that we are comprised of? So we're not, strictly speaking, Suha, we're not as human beings body, mind, and soul. We are rather body and soul. So the body is the spiritual component of our human nature, <clears throat> and the soul is the spiritual component component of our human nature. And unlike the angels, our bodies are made for souls, and our souls are made for bodies. They go together like a hand and glove, if you want to use that analogy. So whatever energy or aura <clears throat> or something like that, hang on a second, that we might hear about or talk about ultimately is going to be something associated with the body and the soul. Now, there can be, and there is, of course, I don't mean to say there can be, but there is a supernatural dimension in terms of holiness. This is why, for example, in Christian iconography, we typically, very often at least, we paint or we portray Jesus with a halo and Mary with a halo, and saints and angels with halos. What is a halo? It's kind of a religious, not a religious, it's, it's kind of a spiritual energy, if we want to talk about it that way, that we depict by this shining golden halo. It's a way of saying, this person is imbued with holiness. The ultimate energy, you might say, which is God himself. And so God being present in you, and in the sanctifying grace of God in you, we, in an artistic way, depict that with a halo. It's like the only way we can think about to try to portray that. And who knows, maybe some of those women who came over and said, I can see your aura, maybe they were great saints, I don't know. Uh, but I don't think they saw much of an aura around me in any case. But we can think of energy that way as well. But we're not body, mind, and soul, because mind and soul are the same thing. Your mind is another way of talking about your intellect, which is the the operation of your soul that knows what is true. And your will, sometimes we refer to that as the heart. That's why you'll see phraseology like heart, mind, and soul. Really, heart and mind are just simply part of the soul. I mean, not that the soul has parts, it doesn't have any parts, but these are operations of the soul. So your mind is your intellect, your thought process, your thinking, making decisions, etc. Your will, which we often call the heart, is when you choose to do one thing over another. You know what is true and you choose what is good, ideally, anyway. So that's all soul. That's spirit. That's in your soul component. And the soul and the body are united together as one entity. So that's what I would say about energy. Energy would have to come from one or the other of those things, and um, I don't deny that, that there is a kind of energy, but I would, I would prefer to concentrate on the spiritual energy, meaning sanctifying grace, the closer you draw to the Lord. Does that make sense, Suha? Do you see what I'm saying? It, it, it makes sense. It's just hard for me to kind of, um, I mean, 
I'm just, I just want to be able to answer somebody that says, oh, there's energy all around us. So there's, um, you know, you could feel this, like you go into a room and there is this bad energy or there's this good energy. And, mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, I just say, God, you know, protect me from anything. And just, I just want only thing that's godly around me. But I don't know how to answer somebody else when they ask me that question in a very simple way yeah you can say sure yeah okay i don't believe in energy because i said i don't believe in energy in that way fair enough so i'm not saying that people can't pick up on you know i've been in some places in my life where i walked into a room and i had a very terrible you know feeling of dread and i i knew and i just knew something really bad happened here at some point along the way. And I didn't know what it was and I didn't want to know what it was, but I felt things like that. Or on the other yeah. side where I've been in some places where I can, it's palpable, the sense of God's presence. You know, if sure. people are talking <laughs> about energy in that sense, sure, we can talk about yeah. energy in that sense. Um, okay. So, yeah, something yeah. to think about. Well, thank you, Sue. I appreciate it. The phone call, hour three is about to start right now. So just stand by. Maybe this would be the good time to dial 888-914-9149. If you hit a busy signal, just hit redial. I'll be right back. Now, 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 now. 